Circle of Birth podcast, reclaiming our birth potential with ancient wisdom and stories from birth and beyond, sharing the rich spectrum of family diversity and transformation, stories worldwide bringing together community and connectivity. Come together with story medicine and inspire at our unique birth journeys. We breathe, we birth, we become. Hello and welcome to episode 47. Welcome to 2018 and welcome to free birth or birth out of the system, however you want to call it, names and labels and things. I think it's remembering or becoming what's back into what we know already. And with the pressures and costs and accessibility for a midwife in private practice in Australia, more and more people are deciding to take full responsibility for their body and their birth. And that's why free birth or whatever it needs to be labelled works for many people. So I'm really honoured and I'm always honoured to talk to people, but I'm really honoured again to talk to people <laughs> and to talk to this woman named Natalie. I connected with her after the 7.30 report which aired on the Australian Broadcasting Commission, which we call the ABC, in Australia late in 2017. Her report included Hannah Darlin, who I spoke to earlier on in the year of 2017, or to 16 maybe, and uh, we spoke about, and she also spoke about in this report, and the changes to insurance for private practising midwives in Australia, which will happen in 2019. So, again, this talks about the increasing risk for women, and when that Natalie and I spoke, I really wanted to hear her full journey because the report on the ABC may have been a bit interpreted for thinking otherwise. So I just really wanted to nut out her story and really share more of her wisdom from the story, not just focusing on she made this decision and this is what's happening in Australia because this is her story. H-E-R in capitals, story, history, her story. <laughs> so listen to a story from a young woman and into the mother that, mother that Natalie is now and seeking the voice that she is serving the community for people to find their own place and their own voice. So enjoy. Uh, welcome, Natalie. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on The Circle of Birth. It's a great honour to have you here. And I know you've got your kids out playing and looking after each other. So thank you for taking your space to come onto the show and share your two stories with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ali. So I would love to delve into you um, coming into your birth education, uh, Hunter Birth Education. Um, but firstly, let's start from you and birthing your first son nine years ago and how that looked for you as a person coming into your pregnancy and you start the story. Yeah, sure. So I guess I came from a childhood where I'd had um, a history of sexual abuse trauma and I spent most of my life sort of trying to kill myself and be self-destructive. Um, lots of party drugs and just being really, really, really horrible to myself. Um, around about age 30, 31, though, I just had a bit of an awakening where it just suddenly occurred to me that I just had this feeling like if I wanted a child, 
um, than it would need to be soon. You know, we all have that sort of clock at 35, this knowledge that our body is aging. And I remember saying to a girlfriend one night out at the rocks off our faces that if we were going to have children, we needed to plan it. We needed to choose a nice man and we needed to plan it by February 2007 and and all of this plan was coming out of me. And, um, yeah, I put the plan into place and I had this really amazing friend that I knew who, you know, every time I saw him I was so happy to see him and I, I orchestrated this sort of sense where I moved from being really self-destructive into being really open to a new life. And um, it did culminate in us dating, you know, the plan wasn't quite as smooth, but um, we did end up, you know, being together and making a baby. Um, and I was very, very healthy by then. I'd gone through a big healthy phase of cleansing my body and my mind and being really open to this new amazing life of healthiness and life and okay. family. So just sort of backtracking a bit, um, one of my big interests in birth work and, you know, coming from a space of abuse too is really looking at sexual abuse and how that triggers into a pregnancy and birth. Um, did you... Is there any resources you, you can recommend in, during that period before you became pregnant and while you're pregnant? Did you have an awareness of that? That that's what could have triggered things for you, or how did you go with that? Oh, there is an amazing book. I think it's is it by Ellen Bass. Uh, I can't remember her name. Um, I'd pop it on your blog, and it was about being a survivor. And it sort of instead of seeing myself as a victim, I really began to see myself as a survivor and that was a huge turning point for how I felt about myself, definitely. Um, I also started to write my own life biography or whatever you call it or fiction about my life and as I sat down to write every chapter because I had so many boyfriends, I was one of those people that went from relationship to relationship escaping things and looking for happiness and the funny thing was the theme of every chapter was I met this guy while drinking. I met this guy while I was drunk and I discovered writing my my fiction of my life was that I had an alcohol problem. Um, so that was a massive turning point for my life. So there's a few things that happened in regards to sexual abuse and pregnancy and birth and all of that. Um, does that just, we'll talk about your work later, but is that filtering out into the gifts that you're giving now in your field of work, that you're finding that you're helping people with this background? Funnily enough, when people are attracted to one of my websites, which I call Decisive Focus, my early business, I definitely attract women in my age group with alcohol issues. Um, but I've evolved now. So my new page and my new kind of approach was to be more of a formalised educator. So that's the Hunter Birth Education Centre. So, yeah, where I've evolved I'm attracting different people. It's quite interesting. From a business perspective, um, I'm not very good at running a business or um, earning money. I've got all sorts of blockages going on there as well. Uh, I could go on forever on all of these topics. Um, um, but, yes, I do. I, I do draw in women who want to get healthy, and it's really amazing when I work with a client like that because – I just give her permission to be healthy. It's like, for me, it was like a, a switch. I literally had 
paths in front of me and one was health and I chose health. Yeah, great. And so you guys became pregnant together? We did. How did that look for you, the pregnancy and leading into your birth experience? Uh, well, I I loved that every time I went to the toilet and I'd wipe after a, um, you know, a wee or a urine and there was just no blood. And for day after day after day, I'd just wipe and there was no blood and wipe and there was no blood. So I had this really amazing feeling of knowing I was pregnant without needing to do a pregnancy test. And I loved that. It did. It definitely gave me the thrill of what it can feel like for your body to talk to you. And I wasn't connected with my body, even though I'd gone on this path to health and chosen to have a family. I still was so disconnected from my mind and body connection. But I did get that thrill. And then I told him that my period had not come for 16 days. And he made me do three pregnancy tests while he sat around stressing. Um, and unfortunately, we had a, a situation where that my partner was more scared and fearful and nervous than he was ready. Um, and then I had that sense of what it was like to test your body and test your body and test your body and just each time feeling inside. But I know, I know what my body's saying. So, yeah, that sort of probably did start off a whole series of my passion for women being in, in tuned with just the amazing communication our body has when we trust it and we believe in it. Yeah, that's a good point. And so your partner now had children at that time beforehand, is that right? Oh, well, my journey actually has a relationship with that first man and then choosing and then evolving further and further and further into more and more health and actually choosing to separate that relationship. Mm, and that's why there's a nine there's a nine year gap between my two children because there's an entire evolution of me and a new relationship. So, yeah. so then uh, you had your pregnancy tests and yes, you were pregnant because you knew yes. anyway. Um, <laughs> how did the how did the rest of the pregnancy pan out, especially with the fear um, on the other side of things, and how did you navigate yourself around that? I was very um, sort of practical and just knew that if I needed to, I could parent as a single mum. And so there was sort of no pressure on him. I was able to say to him, um, it's okay, I can do this alone. And, and he chose to want to be involved. He got more and more excited and more and more involved. And he's a wonderful dad, actually. And um, he's actually finally got a new partner now many years later. And I think that, yeah, I think he's really looking forward to having more children. So he also had a really great experience of of fatherhood coming upon him and the excitement of that. So we enjoyed the pregnancy. There was lots of laughs and giggles. We sat around on the lounge while, you know, the hiccups happened or I laughed so hard my belly button popped in and out as I laughed and all the, the fun of a new couple discovering pregnancy together. <laughs> I like the belly button. I'm just, yeah. I'm a very visual person. Sometimes <laughs> I'm just trying to visualise a belly button popping in and out. Yeah, it was very freaky. <laughs> Yeah, so that baby had a good like time in the utero, lots of laughing and, yeah, lots of excitement. It was beautiful. Um, the actual pregnancy itself, though, was sort of very standard where I just assumed that you just went to the hospital and they told you everything to do and the midwife just told you exactly how to breathe and birth and positions and just that you were really, really guided and cared for and that, that, was just, that these were the experts of birth. So I completely handed that over to everyone else. Um, 
so, you know, I just did the gestational tests and I just went to every single appointment and I just accepted any ultrasound that was offered and just completely um, followed the standard, went to the standard hospital antenatal course, went to the standard breastfeeding course. Um, I, I went When I went to the hospital at first, I was quite early in the pregnancy. I might have only been about 18 weeks. I was just so excited to be pregnant. And I just remember being met by the hospital staff. This is down in Sydney. And the woman was a bit of a dragon lady at the check-in counter. And I remember sort of saying, I'm here. I'm pregnant. I'm here to book in. And she kind of went, oh, you're only 18 weeks. And because it was really sort of ang almost angry at me for being there. So that was an interesting experience as well. Yeah, I can imagine that's quite disheartening too when you've got all that juicy pregnancy feeling and you just want to share it with everyone, especially midwives. Yeah, you that yeah. notion that they'll get excited for you. But yeah, you probably yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a number, yeah. Yeah. So pretty much you were sort of running on the conveyor belt and heading into your labour. Um, mm. How did that pan out for you guys? Well, I, I accepted a strip and stretch um, by a male obstetrician. So I had a little bit of an experience there where I was sort of questioning why do we need to do this. I was See, I gestate to 42 weeks and so does my mother and two sisters, all of our children. Um, it's just a genetic pattern there. And so I was sort of saying to him at 40 plus 10 days, just why do we need to do this? And he just pulled the whole you've got double the chance your baby will die. It'll be, you know, double the chance of stillborn. Your baby could die right now. And um, so I accepted the strip and stretch. But I do remember feeling a trigger for my sexual abuse because my partner and I were having a distant day because he'd snuck off to have a cigarette. So we're having a sort of a distant, disconnected feeling. And then I was in the, you know, lying on the table with the male doctor doing something I didn't feel comfortable doing. And he was quite vigorous and rough. And I remember him pulling his gloved hand out of my body and holding up this sort of gooey mucus and sort of saying, ha, 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 we have some of the mucus plug. And he was so proud of himself for beginning my process. And it, it really felt very, um, you know, there was this big power imbalance and quite disturbing to have a doctor you know, glorifying himself in this idea that he had begun my body. Um, yes, really triggering and, um, yeah, very upsetting. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I can just totally feel into that situation. And, um, mm. I mean, this is why I'm really expressing the work that I'm trying to do with sexual trauma and birth. Uh, a lot. Did you at the time realise, make that association with that trigger or you just... I kind of did because I remember feeling angry at my partner that he hadn't protected me, which was kind of I realised the associations with me being angry at my mother for not protecting me and sort of, yeah, definitely so many parallels can happen. It's, I mean, after all, a woman births through her most private and sacred part of her body. So definitely, and I'm, I during my path to health, I did create, like I was learning a lot of self-awareness and noticing those sorts of things So and reading that book about being a survivor. It was a big, thick book on sexual abuse. So, yeah, I was definitely being a, sort of aware of them all, which didn't help, though, that I just had that negative upset emotion in my body. So my labour began that way. It began with an upset negative emotion of 
sort of fear and triggers and feeling alone and feeling deserted. And then when I went home that night, um, my partner and I had some sex, but more to say let's get birth going, not to love make. And, um, yeah, so definitely was not a nice start to labour. And then so then the labour progressed that when the first contraction came, the waters gushed because he had rigorously gone against those membranes so rigorously not many hours before. I think I had a premature rupture of membranes because the waters gushed and every contraction for the entire next 23 hours was really tense and painful. And every single time a contraction came, I squeezed and held every muscle of my body tight with terror and fighting against the process. Um, Yeah, it was quite a long and painful labour. Fortunately, I had a deep-seated belief system that women birthed naturally and that the baby was going to birth from my vagina and that I was capable. I'm kind of feeling that through the story that there's parts um, where you've just got this real deep innate, like, knowledge and determination almost that this is how it is and Mm. that's sort of my personality and we we did come from a dairy farm as well so we're fortunate enough to watch so many animals birthing yeah yeah and also i guess whatever deep epigenetic you know innate wisdom that women carry in their body yes so i had a five-page birth plan because i happened to have 10 days past 40 weeks and at that time i thought all women birthed at 40 weeks so I had 10 days of waiting, which gave me 10 days where friends were throwing some stories at me, and I discovered the Indie Birth web pages. Oh, right. Marin Green. Yes. Yeah, yes. Awesome. Which, which so, so this would have been 2000. 2008. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. And from her, somehow I'd found a birth plan somewhere that was from her writings. So I ended up with a five-page birth plan which had all these really great things on it, like breathe long, deep and slow through the contractions and relax your body and all these really awesome bits of advice, which unfortunately were really just little bits of printed word on paper and had no depth of meaning. So despite this amazing birth plan, I did none of the recommended things. But my midwives all passed the birth plan around. And so what ended up happening was I ended up getting given some birth, um, some midwives. I came in and out of hospital um, once. But when I finally was ready to birth, like transitioning and coming back and really dilated and really ready, I got two midwives who were hands off, hands in pockets, and were able to just sit with me in the bath. And just despite me begging for epidurals and begging for pethidine, just they were able to follow my birth plan which said I wanted a natural birth with no drugs, and they were able to just keep saying to me, just keep on breathing. That's good. You're doing well. And looking me in the eye. Wow. Yes. Yes. So thank – and I know – yeah, in hindsight, I know how lucky I was to have those midwives doing that. And they just allowed me to go through all the terror and the pain and the fear and the – I give up and I can't do this and I want to escape. And they just kept, oh, it was just amazing that they yeah. stuck by They stuck by me. Yeah, it's a bit of a, because what I'm seeing is, you know, the wounding and, you know, the past and um, that sort of escaping from things. And you just showed up to it completely in one of the most transformative experiences of your life. 
Yeah, thank you for saying that, Ali. That, and you've just helped me realise that, you know, it was like those midwives were there for me when maybe my mother wasn't to protect me, but they did, you know. So, yeah, yeah that was probably an amazing healing. And thank you for saying that. I hadn't even thought of it. Yeah, that's just beautiful. I, again, I'm visual and I'm just picturing those, like, midwives. Mm-hmm. They're all, like, got a bit of a glow around. It just sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, that's mm-hmm. something you've just initiated. So it's very cosmic sort of stuff, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and they definitely kept my space clear of men. Like, there was no doctor ever that visited. Yeah. 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 And they knew, and I had been honest, and they knew I was um, a survivor of sexual um, assault, and so they knew that was important to me. And yeah, and they were both really young, and neither of them had ever birthed before. So there was a part of me that was thinking, "You don't know," but you know, it didn't matter. It was that woman, that sisterhood, that mattered. Yeah, and again, like you carried through the whole pregnancy, that deep, innate knowing of what this is. Mm-hmm. true true deep lineage of midwifery and womanhood and sisterhood wow. yeah <laughs> so my biggest fear for that birth was that my vagina would tear and that came from my mother constantly telling me about my birth how I tore her vagina she pushed me out really fast so I had all these fears and that was part of the reason this labor went for 23 hours because I was even in the bath literally clamping my thighs shut holding my baby in despite a very strong expulsive reflex. And, um, yeah, so in the end what happened was I jumped out of the bath because the epidural arrived and, of course, I was 10 centimetres and, of course, they sent the epidural away. And that was when they said, you know, more contractions were pushing the baby and I said, I need to push again. And they said to me, you can, you can. And I had this amazing moment where I realised, a light bulb moment where I realised I'm about to birth a baby out of my body. And then I just went into birth mode and I was like, they were like, where do you want to birth? And I was like, you know, down on the ground on my hands and knees. And I just sort of really suddenly knew I'm about to birth a baby. And then I finally let my fear out. So I'd been holding this fear in for every appointment, for every month and for every hour. And I and I sort of yelled, I'm afraid my vagina will tear. Like, you know, in this really like blurted out and, that, and then the funny thing was I'd actually read a midwifery textbook as part of my pre-labor, um, you know, my early labor, birth or whatever, uh, preparation. And, yeah, the next the next words that left my mouth were, can you manage my perineum with a warm pad? <laughs> you know, so I sort of, it was hilarious that, to think that a woman has this fear in her, but somewhere in her, and this is the work I do with hypnotherapy, is that she also has the wisdom and the answer. Um, and it's just helping people connect that. And, um, yeah, so they were like, oh, it's easier on the bed. And I just ended up on the bed and my hands and knees and they were managing my perineum with a warm pad. And it was only six sort of pushes later that she had fully emerged. And a couple of those pushes was, was me finally uh, emptying my bowel because what had happened was I'd had a two-day labour where I had not done any um, solid movements and because I was just in the adrenaline fear state for that entire time it's a miracle I birthed naturally with a full full bowel Mm. and I just and when I when I was on the bed ready to actually birth I remember even just saying to the midwives you know oh good because I really need to poo and just literally knew 
that these next couple of pushes was going to me was going to be me allowing this solid waste out of my body that I had held. And literally, you know, how great midwives are at wiping pill ways. So they just sort of, you know, wipe and, you know, wipe and wipe and, you know, this neat little motion of more poo wipe, more poo wipe, more poo wipe. And I literally did this entire solid waste of two days. Wow. Yeah. And then I just remember, of course, the woman's hormones are so alive. And I remember just saying, I can smell my own poo get my poo out of here. You know, I, you know, this whole, I've got to have this perfect birth space for my newborn. And, um, and one of the young student midwives, cause there was one that was a student, she's sort of like, Oh, oh I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, and she's realized this mistake of accidentally doing this and, um, you know, and off this tray went <laughs> wow. and it wasn't long before the room sort of smelled perfectly fine. Again, it was just my, my senses were so in tuned and, um, and then I was able to, you know, birth her, uh, him, sorry, my son, it, within just a couple of contractions, really. And so the feeling, can you just walk us through what that feeling was like when he yeah. came into your arms? Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I thought you meant the feeling of birthing a baby. Um, well, that too. Yeah. Well, because they say it feels like birthing, uh, uh, doing a poo, but I always laugh about that because to me it feels nothing like doing a poo. It feels like actually birthing a baby from your vagina or your labia or birth path or whatever parts of the we want to talk about. Um, so my poo felt like a poo leaving my anus and then my baby to me felt like a rectangular hard rubber leaving my vagina. And, uh, yes, Yes, so I felt two extremely different feelings. So I, I always laugh when they say it's just like doing a poo. And um, so then I was kind of in shock, you know, when he was brought to me. And also I was very disconnected from my emotions. This is, you know, nearly 10 years ago. So when I met him, I had this sort of almost feeling like, oh, there's my baby. I feel protective and loving and content and I'm glad to meet him. But I don't want to be that emotional woman you know, I'm, I'm just going to be all practical now. So I sort of didn't really get, I, I always feel jealous when I see videos of women laughing and in love, you know. Um, even with my recent birth, I have to admit that I just, I'm just not like, I don't, I don't, it's like a, this is probably a relic from my abuse. I have trouble letting myself feel childlike joy. Um, that's something I'm working on. Um, so he's on me and he's on my chest and he's looking healthy and wonderful and great. And, um, you know, he's doing a little bit of head bumping and I had I knew a bit of the natural breast crawl and I was looking forward to him finding my nipple. Um, but unfortunately back then they used to still pull out that horrible little sucky, sucky bulb thing. And the midwife just started to poke it up his nose and sucky, sucky bulb him. And I'd seen it on a birth video and I knew they would do it. And I said to myself in my head, you knew this would happen, just let it happen. So she's sort of sucking in his nostrils and then she stopped and then he was fine again and he was breathing fine and he was bobbing again and he was he was lovely. He had good colour, more colour was coming. He, he was big and four kilos and healthy and then she came again with a sucky, sucky bulb. And this time I said, he's okay. And from that moment on it was like, Things spiraled out of control. I they called in a pediatrician to check him, and it was very strange. But he was taken to an examination table, and the pediatrician was doing these checks on him. 
and you know I don't even know exactly what was going on really because there was no problem with my son he was healthy and I think any mother can detect that and but they did um classify him as have some some tardicadia breathing and I mean we've since learned that the sucky bulb thing to the nose can disrupt a baby's breathing and cause you know some irregularities so I don't even know exactly what was being detected um but what happened with me was this led to a baby separation where he was taken to the nursery for observation and I said to my um partner his father stay with him, stay with him. You know, that mummy bear instinct to protect my child was very strong and he left with him. And, um, yeah, I was left in a bed. Um, I had um, some hemorrhaging or I don't call it hemorrhaging really. I bleed. I bleed a lot when I birth. And they ended up giving me some syntocin through a drip which I accepted. I didn't want the injection. I was hoping for a natural physiological third stage. Um, I don't know. I guess basically I missed out on bonding with my own baby. Um, yeah, it's very sort of sort of shocking that that could happen. And the reason was perhaps a slight tardicadia breathing. No actual health reason, no actual emergency of any kind, no actual... Um, problem. Um, I feel in some ways they did that because I was weak from the blood loss. Um, I was tired from a 23-hour labour, so I feel like maybe those things influenced the hospital staff's behaviour. Um, later on, I went to visit my son. I laid in that bed in my own blood all night, um, every now and then buzzing for a midwife to try and find out when I would see my own baby. Um, I ended up with um, uh, the, uh, the IV drip ended up backing up and I sat there in the bed just thinking, should I pull it out myself? I don't know how to deal with this medical equipment. Um, so all sorts of strange experiences happened to me. And when I did finally go and meet my son, you know, maybe as much as 12 hours later, he was being cuddled, no joke, by the paediatrician who took him, which is lovely. I'm so glad my son had some attachment with a human but my, the paediatrician, the male paediatrician, was literally cuddling my, my baby in his lap at the desk of the NICU. You're listening to the Circle of Birth podcast, circleofbirth.com. So it was really strange. I mean, my, my son was taken away by a man who then bonded with him. Yeah, I can imagine a lot would have come up for you just seeing that. You know. I've got it. Luckily, my overriding emotion was I'm so glad a human is cuddling my son. Like it was actually, but it was, you know, when I reflect on it later, I'm like, what was the, what was the motivation around taking my son? There was only one other child in the entire NICU. So it was almost like they were low on babies. It was almost like the pediatrician had nothing to do. And it felt like it all became triggered by me saying he's okay and, and sort of gently brushing the midwife, not touching her, but my hand kind of did a little wave in the air. So it was sort of like this sudden power struggle arose from me wanting to mother my own son. 
Yeah, mm. so you feel that, that just that little moment, that manoeuvre of your hand might have been one of those uh, moments. Moments, a power struggle. Cascade. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And I know my sense in that hospital, my sense was, and this is such a history we have as women, a sisterhood, I felt like I can't say what I want, I can't stand up for my rights, or I will be labelled the neurotic woman who needs to go to a mental hospital or I will be na- labelled the witch who needs to be hung or drowned. It, it felt like I was on little just this nervous sense of the woman can't actually say her feelings or act irrational or emotional or hormonal in any way because I felt like the system our system, if you want to call it the patriarchal system, whatever, I can't even pronounce that. So, But I felt like somehow our human cultural system says to women, no, you can't have your voice. You'll be labelled hysterical. You'll be put into an institution. You'll be put on an island. You know, our history of the way women have been treated felt deeply, I felt a deep sense of that, like I needed to be very, very careful. Yeah, I mean, that's not uncommon. Um I mean, the system A is not designed to support that either. And it just, for some reason, it just reminded me of this podcast that I listened to a few months ago that really got me choked up. And it was an African-American woman saying the exact same thing, that she thought if she had her voice, that they'd take her baby away. Yes. Baby separation. Yes. Yes. In this system that all this stuff was happening to her and mm. she couldn't say anything because she thought they're going to take my child so I need to yeah. shut up and that just like got me so I mean yeah that's so true yeah you know, it happened to me it's happened to so many women and we you know we just accept it sometimes and then there's mm. others that aren't accepting it and then we're like, you know, we, we, we carry that label yeah it's yeah. Yeah, yeah it's the power it's the power people have over women um, not deliberately, but it's the fear, yeah. definitely. I mean, that's a big part of my birth that I birthed 17 months ago. My daughter, I shaped and shaped and shaped, you know, we want to shape our birth to have a private midwife that would, and his sole purpose for me hiring him was that if anything happens, that he was supposed to stand at my side and know he's familiar with all the local midwives and hospital staff, and I was hiring him literally to be the person who ensured that my baby was not separated from me. And in the end, I actually didn't feel like that he would be able to fulfill that role and also that I wanted a man at my birth when I wanted to open my private parts smoothly and that is what led to me actually, or there's many factors, but one of a key factor was led to me not having that midwife. So I signed, I wrote a letter and chatted to him very openly, and I signed my care over to myself, like legally and document-wise. And then the idea was that I could then choose to attend John Hunter Hospital when I birthed. And so, um, yeah, so. Walk us through, I guess, that journey um, nine years later. Mm. And, you know, again, like you've had 
probably in that nine years a lot of growth um, mm. shifts and change to you as a human being and a person and a mother and Mm. So I suppose one of the key things that happened for my first pregnancy was I said to a midwife at the hospital, I would like as natural a birth as possible with as, like, hopefully as little pain as possible. And I'd heard of hypnobirthing because my stepmother was one of the earliest ever hypnobirthers in all of Australia up in um, Brisbane. And um, I knew that she did that, although I hadn't had much contact with her. But I knew of her and that. And the midwife said to me, oh, no, we don't like that here. So there was this big misconception of what it even was because the midwife thought it was tap, tap, tapping, she said, that's really annoying, and there is absolutely zero tapping in hypnobirthing. And what had happened was there'd been some confusion with who a hypnotherapist was who must have taught some pregnant woman a tapping technique to attempt to, I don't know, trance her out during a, during a contraction or something. And that had really stuck with me because when I had my tense, painful birth where I knew nothing, I had regretted listening to the advice of one single midwife. And one thing I've learned about birth is never listen to one single person's opinion because we can get very trapped in that narrow-minded idea. So what I've done then is I've then spent the rest of my time actually moving into um, being a hypnobirthing educator. Um, and that all sort of came around my sister having an, um, some caesarean uh, that's a long story, but it certainly got me very interested in what's happening with birth today. And I became a hypnobirthing educator. So for many, many years, I've been an independent birth educator. And I guess I learned a lot. And one of the biggest things I would say that that's taught me is my connection with my body and my my feeling and sense of my breathing and my body and my movement and my instinct and my, my connection with my emotions. Um, and that's definitely a big part of what's what then brought me into a place where, and my clients have taught me more about birth than I've learned anywhere else. So some of my clients. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah, they they came to me um, and asked me questions about topics that I had never even thought about. They would come to me and ask about the hepatitis B vaccine on day one of birth for instance and I would have to sheepishly admit that I had never looked into that or thought about that and I'd need to sort of say to them I'd be very happy to go and do some research and let you know what I find and they would share their research with me and um, so all sorts of topics have come up for me over the years because my clients came to me and also I've seen my clients accidentally free birth babies and open my mind to this idea about how smooth and safe and wonderful birth can be. Um, it's been amazing. Uh, so by the time I so I had a journey. Mm. Did you birth um, Hunter Birth Education Centre before your little daughter? Mm. Was that? Wow, that's a great question. Gee, it's hard to remember exactly when everything happened. I think so because what I did was I went on a journey of miscarriage. Yes, I did. Oh. I went on a journey of losing some babies and even having a molar pregnancy where their body uses the sperm DNA to just grow plus clusters of placental cells and there's no nucleus from the ova. So Was that a partial or a full? 
-hmm. Yep, full. Just my whole uterus became full of placenta clusters of placental cells, and that was all my body developed. Uh, so yeah, I'd gone on that journey, and it was during that journey that I birthed Hunter Birth Education Center because I became very involved in a wonderful group of um, it's a wellness hub, a wonderful group of local health practitioners, and I really started to chat to them about how. Up here in our area, when a pregnant woman does a Google search, all she finds really is a hospital website or a business maybe just um, offering something beautiful like, say, calm birthing. However, there's no sort of central website up here where she finds everything. So I created that to ensure that when a person does a Google search, they do find a web page that lists so my page was all designed around letting women know about our home birth options and our midwife options. So she might search for something like pregnancy birth hunter and she will find the Hunter Birth Education's webpage and there she will read choices for birth, local prenatal care choices and she'll find hopefully amazing things that her GP might not have time to mention to her or her midwife might not have time to mention to her. So that's that whole idea around that. Yeah, so a bit of a my, Yeah, but my dream was um, that all the local practitioners all add everything that they do to that to that page, and my dream has not yet come to fruition. Um, I guess sometimes in the birth world we're maybe not as collaborative as I would dream we could be, um, which is an interesting thing. That's just a totally separate topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're getting and, there. <laughs> Yeah, and I made the mistake as well of calling it the Hunter Birth Education Centre, which kind of caused some confusion because it sounded like a physical centre. And it, at this point in time, it's a virtual centre. So that also um, – and then people got confused because they would read something like acupuncture on the webpage and assume that the Hunter Birth Education Centre had acupuncture available. But I do referrals to all those things. So that's just been, um, as I said earlier in the – chat you know this whole business thing i'm not good at it i don't i'm running blind on how to do things like that my passion is definitely just working with men and women <laughs> i mean that would be the ideal wouldn't it for a lot of us and you know i'm discussing this at the moment is having that physical center across oh, all yes. states across australia where a woman could just go in and be like oh yeah <laughs> i know if i had the money imagine what we could all do if we had the I money know. to build Where's all I those know. millions of dollars just landing on our lap so we can, yeah. you know, we're clever people. We want to invest in humanity. Just give us yeah. the chance. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. So what I wanted to do, though, is I wanted to register the Hunter Birth Education Centre as a not-for-profit, and I did want to um, get some government funding through not-for-profit grants. With with the molar pregnancy, so we, we've just got such a similar story. I had a partial molar before <gasps> I had my daughter. Um now, I got pregnant four months later, and I did a lot of research on molar and partial molar pregnancies. Um, how long after your molar did you... Because this is a question on everyone's lips that's been through molar or partial molar, um, mm. is going through mm. the grief of the loss and then wondering... Because the doctors tell you for a partial is six months. Um, mm. Molar is like a year, I think. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. How, how long did you... Mm, that's an interesting question. So I actually ended up with a full molar pregnancy and then a DNC and then the molar pregnancy continued to grow a bit deeper into the uterus and I ended up having to accept um, chemotherapy methotrexate injections to 
stop those cells from continuing to multiply. So I was given advice of waiting a year. But I did have one doctor admit to me that it's three months after methotrexate that you really need to be concerned. So I was, yeah, I was definitely open to pregnancy whenever my body was ready. But then I had another interesting thing that happened where I had a miscarriage from that baby, um, just a random, I don't believe it had anything to do with the methotrexate or the molar pregnancy, but just I did happen to miscarry again. Um, Now the exact reason for that I don't know, but it happened around about that time that a lot of miscarriages can happen where the placenta is supposed to take over its function and the egg yolk um, sort of depletes and and it it doesn't happen. So the baby just slowly went, fell below the growth expectations and um, stopped developing because the placenta didn't flourish. So... Yeah, very complicated. But I'm working, another client's just recently contacted me and she's had a molar pregnancy and she's do, doing the same thing, wondering how long. She's a bit, she, she she's fallen pregnant sooner than the doctors wanted her to. But I'll just say on that topic, when I did extreme research as well and what my understanding was, this is the funny thing, the reason they ask you to wait is not necessarily because the molar pregnancy has any effect on the woman's body or the next pregnancy, but that they don't like to be confused by beta HCG readings. So the doctors don't like to get a blood test that shows, say, a beta HCG of 130 unless they know for sure it's a baby because they worry the molar's growing back. So... What's the earliest ultrasound you can possibly have to show a baby? I don't know how many weeks. weeks, Say six weeks or something. So they would spend those six weeks with your beta HCG rising sharply, stressing that you're having a regrowth of placental tissue. And so the main, main, that's what my understanding was, that's their main, main concern and they don't like that. They don't like to feel confused or worried. Um, So that was my main understanding. My personal opinion is if the woman's body is flourishing and ready and well and developing a baby, then the body is ready, flourishing, well and developing a baby. Yeah. It's a really tricky one to research. All I found was vitamin A and Mm. selenium. Like, because I really strive to go on the nutrition side of things, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of the medical uh, <laughs> body functions type of thing. And yeah, it's a really hard one. It's really researched and um, yeah, it's interesting. There weren't many papers on it, but I found I think every paper in the world. Because I went through that massive long journey of methotrexate, I was researching obsessively, and I do that anyway on any topic. Um, you know. For four hours a night. Yeah, yeah. For many, many months. So, what was the feeling like in that initial pregnancy with Cyan? Was there a bit of anxiety, or you just knew? Did you have a feeling that this was? Yeah. Oh no, I definitely felt. I definitely spent many weeks preparing myself for the idea that it's possible that I'll miscarry again, but also just wanting to be in the moment and letting myself love whatever baby was developing um, and but de- definitely seeing um, I think I see the world now I'm very much in the here and now and each moment is a moment of happiness or each moment is a moment of gratitude and definitely 
knowing that if you can live with that gratitude and that and that moment of happiness, then if grief comes, then I can cope with that then as a separate issue. Um, so I did let myself fall in love with her inside of me and I felt her first movement. I was lying on my back doing mindfulness, listening, you know, feeling my own heart, um, getting in touch with all the parts of my body, and I felt her first movement at something like 10 weeks. So I was really in touch with my uterus, really in touch with movements in my uterus, even tiny, tiny movements. So it might have been 10 weeks or 13 weeks. It was something very, very early. And, and um, yeah, so loving her, oh, not knowing if she was a girl or a boy, I deliberately say that as a surprise. Um, but I have to say I was not in the slightest bit surprised. It was like I even knew that I was having a daughter. Tapping yeah. to that innate knowledge again. Yeah. I, so I definitely had a great, beautiful connection and enjoyed every every single day and also I was grieving I was letting myself grieve that this would be the last time I held a pregnancy in my body and letting myself be able to say goodbye to that yeah I just want to express that we I've talked I was talking to this about a midwife the other day um, how much of a natural process this is and it's okay like this is grief this is real it's okay to feel that um, mm -hmm. when you but you know you're grieving that you might never conceive again or you're grieving like you said a last pregnancy um, mm. there's a and yeah for that. definitely and just the grief process also um the big one of um breastfeeding and as the milk you know is leaving your body and going into your child starting to grieve that idea that soon that will be the last drop you know, so that's really good yeah. as well, which I, that's sort of the phase I'm coming into now because she's 17 months and who knows when she'll self-wean. When, when I just heard you talk before about the sort of being present and, you know, allowing that love to come through, I just found that really beautiful to listen to and I just got taken right back to when you first explained yourself sitting at the rock with your friend um, and just that state of being that that person was in and you know just saying that initiating all those things of bringing in children and having that conversation and then just the massive growth that you've had as a person to yes you are now I, this is what uh -huh. I love like sharing these stories because just the growth that you've had and the shifts into this person that and these beautiful gifts that you can give now so like, thank you I just had that moment of like you back then and then there and, yeah. yeah, it's been a huge journey. Yeah. Thank you, Ali. Hmm. Now, so oh, to get to the birth, it's, it's a difficult one. It seems to be so much the same. We know we're running out of time now. Um, I guess I just got – I always had a vision in my mind when I closed my eyes that when I birthed it was my partner and I and there was just no one else in the vision. And I was leaning against the side of the bed and he was behind me. And I just always had that vision. And what ended up happening during my pregnancy and during my time with my midwife and my plans is that just stronger and stronger I just realised that if my vision was that, then that was going to be the smoothest, safest thing for me because I felt like if I fight my vision, then it will all just become construed and um, disruptive and you know it just felt like if I work with my vision then that's how my vision is um, and yeah so in the end that was the birth that we shaped um, I just literally planned to have just my partner and I 
Um, as time got closer and closer, I realized that I really wanted my son here. Because of our baby separation when he was a baby, it occurred to me that I wanted him to be a part of the circle, to be with me, with the new baby. And so he was home. And we had a wise woman in the area who I had ready in case I needed someone to come to my medical assistance um, if I needed to call her. And so I went to 42 weeks plus three days, but I knew my um, ovulation was 31 days. So I birthed technically exactly on 42 weeks gestation. Um, and my partner and I made love and after that he fell asleep in the afternoon and I had really strong surges and then we went to pick up my son from school and my waters released and so I sent my partner off alone and I said I'll be you know I'll be hours and hours and hours because of course my first birth was 23 hours um, and he, he went off to get my son and take my son to soccer and I birthed at home alone for about an hour and a half and I was pretty much stuck on the bed. I couldn't even get to my phone because the contractions were just so strong and powerful. And But I didn't really want to get to my phone. I knew my partner would be home soon, and I was just having an amazing time. I was lucky enough to have a video just set up nearby, which I occasionally was able to press record on. So I've captured heaps of footage of the birth. Um, my partner came home, and, yeah, it was just Funnily, like during the birth, there was a couple of moments where I kind of suddenly thought, um, you know, do I really want to do this? Like, do I really want to birth at home alone? Like, do I want to be at the hospital? Like a sudden fear, a sudden panic. And, um, yeah, just remind myself that, you know, I was sort of thinking if I went to the hospital now, you know, I want to ask for my baby to be cut out of me, you know, because I just was in so much intense pain uh, with these really intense contractions that were happening sort of right down the front of my uterus, right down near the pelvic area. And um, and then reminding myself that the, you know, no, the smoothest way to birth a baby is out of, you know, the vagina and, you know, just reminding myself that I could do it. And then I started sort of yelling at myself, yes, yes, yes. And yelling at myself, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> She's joining in. She just wants to grab the microphone. And, um, yeah, and then my partner came home and my son went to watch a movie in his room because he didn't like that his mother was in so much pain. He found it very disturbing. And I'm yelling out, it's normal, it's all normal, <laughs> sounding like an absolute crazy person. And um, sorry, he's just come out. And uh, yeah, so the way she birthed was my partner had run a warm bath and I started fantasizing about how if I get into warm water, this intense pain won't feel so, so intense. And I stepped off the bed to go to the warm bath and that just sent my body into the massive jerking expulsive reflex and her head started to crown. And I said to my partner, you know, she's coming with the next contraction. So he had a little um, bucket with a poo wipe ready and he also had the warm pads in the um, hot pot ready. Yeah, he was all ready, had, had all of the instructions ready. So with the next contraction, yeah, I let I let her head emerge 
And I remember just holding my fingers on every single part of my entire labia, sort of spreading my fingers to touch as much of myself as I could and saying to myself, relax, open, relax, open. And, um, you know, her head emerged and I was intact. So I've had two babies intact and both of them four kilo babies. So that was wonderful. And so so let me just walk us through quickly the uh, moment with the hemorrhaging because you knew that that was a possibility and you set yourself up for that to happen. I just want to talk about the part where you ate a bit of your placenta. I think that's really important to talk about. Yeah, so I had done a lot of research and I have a lot of communication with the midwives, what I call the wise women of the world, all the international midwives as well. And I there's often discussions about what can you do for a woman who bleeds after birth to, you know, slow down that bleeding. And, you know, the idea of the placenta being placed inside the cheek and against the gum was something that I had heard as, you know, something that can stem the bleeding quite fast. So I sort of had all these ideas in my mind. I knew I was going to bleed heavily. I always do for the molar, for the pregnant, for the after pregnancy and for miscarriages. But I also knew I was capable of very large blood loss because I have lost couples of litres of bloods on numerous occasions and I cope fine. Um, but I also knew these things in my mind that I was willing to do and ready to do. So basically I you know, I did bleed quite heavily. There was blood sort of all over the bed, all over the floor, all over the towels. And um, I knew that I would need to do something to recover and to stem that bleeding as fast as possible. So what I ended up doing was I ended up birthing the placenta sitting on the toilet. And luckily we'd put a new toilet system in because the placenta got stuck in the toilet and we literally had to pull it out of this little U-bend. And then, you know, I got my partner to be able to oh, cut. So it got off. stuck up the... Like it the, got wow. <laughs> I we had literally installed a whole new suite. So by luck, we literally had this new toilet just sitting there. And so, you know, we had a clean toilet for my placenta to get stuck in. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was sitting because it was this tiny little U-bend, like and not like the old style toilets. So when the placenta fell into this toilet, it became lodged inside. I know, it was hilarious. So I had a baby attached by an umbilical cord to a lodged placenta and I literally had to reach in and try and pull the placenta out and the cord, you know, I was worried that I'd snap the umbilical cord and this is like a long time after birth and, you know, she'd already received all of her wonderful cord blood. (sighs) And I ended up having to dig my fingers into my own placenta and yank this thing out. Oh, my gosh. And so then I was able to get my partner to cut pieces off from the part that hadn't been, you know, in the toilet and to rinse it anyway and to finally, finally have a bit of placenta to put in my mouth. Right. Wow. Very, very funny. And um, and the funny, so the interesting thing about putting fresh placenta into your mouth is especially after birth and you've kind of been through this big, long, exhausting ordeal, is it actually tasted delicious. It was. It tasted um, just the what they call the bliss point when they, you know, they market food at McDonald's to the bliss point. So it had just the right amount of saltiness and sweetness. Mm, yeah. And so when it was warm and sweet and salty in my mouth and I felt familiar with it, you know, this is an organ from my body, you know, that has been growing with my baby and, you know, I felt a safe feeling. Yes. <laughs> and we've got, we've worked hard to get it. So, 
and I just found myself chewing and sucking and wanting the goodness from it. And then I just said to my partner, hand me more, hand me more, hand me more. And in my mind, it was like, I need to replenish my body. And this is the best thing Mother Nature has got right now. It's got blood in it. It's got stem cells in it. It's got all the hormones in it. It's got the, you know, the salt. It's obviously got salt and sugar in it. Just Minerals. I, and, and I'd also made sure I'd eaten as organically as I possibly could so that I knew my placenta wasn't going to be accumulating all sorts of toxins, that I had actually a clean and good placenta. That was very important to me. And I'd always said about placentas, I'm not actually really all that into encapsulations, but, you know, just because, you know, I feel like I'm an instinctual person. So what I had said about placenta consumption, my my personal feeling was if it was instinctual and it felt like I'd driven to it, then I'd do it. And to find myself actually asking, give me more, give me more, and actually perfectly enjoying it, I just felt, well, this is my instinct then. And I wasn't – it was sort of – it's sort of a little bit of a um, chewy texture. So I was more chewing and and enjoying the juiciness, but then I was actually spitting out the chewy bit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you're extracting all the goodness and then – Yeah, so I wasn't eating – yeah, and also – yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. So I highly recommend anyone who is encapsulating that they also consider consuming a little bit fresh. Yeah. So I have completely changed my whole thought on – I had started studying encapsulation and then halfway through I sat with an elder woman in our local area that said um, that the placenta is the baby's map and it's its journey in there and you could eat <laughs> – a smaller bit around the maternal side, but it must be buried back on country. And then we did plant her placenta under a lily pilly tree. So we eat the lily pillies from the lily pilly tree, which I'm sure you're like, yeah, which is a beautiful on country bush tucker. So yes, yes, it's an interesting topic, the placenta thing. And I think unfortunately there's sort of some money in that and business in that. So I, I, I do ponder upon, upon that. But you know, look, if well, women baby think, steps for people, you know, going from not even consuming it to consuming it, that's a huge thing, I think, yeah. of connecting against the body and, you know. Definitely as far as our belief systems are important. So I, I feel very strongly that if a woman is feeling it's going to be a positive um, experience for her to have those pills every day for her postpartum, then, then that's great. Yeah, if, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there's lots of good around yeah. it as well. It's better than medical waste, that's for sure. Gosh, yes. <laughs> and so you found the bleeding subsided after that? Well, I, I, I think possibly by then, you know, the uterus does recover. So I think I think my, you know, as soon as you get those after pains, as soon as you get those contractions happening after birth, you know, we're well and truly on our way to recovering our uterus anyway. Um so I, I don't know exactly how and when my uterus recovered really. I mean, I was tweaking my nipples to ensure I continued to get contractions, which worked well, and I was eating the placenta to ensure I was replenishing myself. Um, so I was doing lots of things around it, and I, I was feeling my uterus and, and feeling that it felt like it was hardening down and it sort of has this big, hard, round sense like a, a, a frozen chicken, I've heard it described, and I could feel that. Um, I did feel nervous to move. I felt like if I move, I could begin fresh bleeding. So that's what led to me sitting up against a cold bathroom floor. My partner's bringing me lots of hot towels, but that's what led to me getting dizzy spells. Right, yep. 
And so in the 7.30 report, I talk about how I was kind of passing out or resting, I was calling it, where because I was sitting up and my blood pressure was low and I had lost a lot of blood and I was in a bit of shock, just very mild shock, of course, but because of those factors, I was actually passing out and just, you know, blanking out and coming back with my name. So technically that's not unconscious. If you come back to your name, you're, you're, you're not unconscious. So I was sort of with it but not quite with it because I was going into rest and it was only really when I finally rang my wise woman and she said, go and lie down, eat a banana and go and lie down, um, lie down flat with your feet just slightly elevated. And I did that and then I was perfectly fine. After that, I even went up and had a shower and I did this and that and I just kept my head a bit low and I was fine. I did not have any dizzy spells at all after that. So it was purely that mistake of sitting up straight against a wall. Okay. Yeah, I can see. So that, that brought any challenge t- to me at all, yeah. um, and I would have easily lost two liters of blood. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to ask too: How did you feel after releasing that story? Um, you know, how did you feel after that, and you know the sort of feedback, and how did you, how you sort of coped with that? Just yep. just in terms of other people that want to share their stories about whether it be free birth or doing something that is empowering them as a person or inspiring others um, that might be a bit fearful about releasing it to public, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, Well, the interesting thing I found actually about um, speaking out on very, very topical things, um, so free birth is one of the topics I speak out on about, is that it's actually quite funny the surprisingly little amount of backlash that happens. So with the 7.30 report, I just self-cared. I just self-cared. I knew there'd be people with all sorts of wild opinions. They didn't know my truths. They didn't walk in my shoes. They really had no idea at all. I knew that would happen, so I self-cared. I just did not um, read any threads um, or any comments on any public mainstream type page. With all of the extremely outspoken topics that I speak on, um, I might have had one or two personal messages to my pages and you can find me anywhere. You can find my address, you can find my phone number, you can find my pages, you can you can PM me on various pages on Facebook and I've had one or two personal messages where people might just say something like, oh, you have a responsibility, you, sh- you should not speak like that, I'm going to tell everybody not to come to you. And, you know, that, and that's the extent of the attacks upon me. Yeah. And so, so of, possibly more good has come out of that. More people have been given a voice. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of – a lot, of, and also the personal messages I get that are positive far, far outweigh. Right, right. So I might, yeah. Yeah. I might have had, say, 30 personal messages that have all said, thank you so much for speaking your truth. I, and then they share their story. I've had a similar experience. Um, you've, you know, well done. Um, congratulations. So – it's just really funny. I think we expect um, a lot more te- negativity than actually comes. So the keyboard troll warriors that almost create a sense of we'll be attacked, we'll be attacked, we'll be attacked. I don't know how I haven't been targeted. I hope I'm not inviting targeting by saying this. But they're actually um, – it's not as bad as we imagine. So my opinion about speaking out is that – if you speak out loudly and proudly and you are ready to walk in your truth and you are ready to be um, just, you know, knowing 
that people will judge you and that that's okay because you know your own truth. If you're ready to be very, very loud and very, very proud, um, I, f I feel like, sorry, I've been very distracted here. I feel like you don't become a target in as way as, as in the way you might imagine that you will. That we almost maybe maybe the culture has some sort of respect for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, yeah. So I don't know. I feel like if 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 we all speak out more, there's strength in numbers, and maybe we can sort of have a bit of a. I know Hannah Darlin was sort of speaking of revolution after that ABC report that maybe we can have a bit of a revolution because if enough speak, people speak at the same time on the same topics loudly and proudly enough, I think that's a revolution. Yeah, well said. And she actually said that on the podcast interview that I did with her some time ago. It was the exact same thing, that it's we, the consumers, the people, need to have our voice. We need to get out there and speak it. Um, that's yeah. the only way it's going to shift. Oh, Thanks. thank you. Well, good luck editing that then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, much pleasure and thanks for um, just sharing that beautiful journey and really exploring and um, opening all those channels up. So I can't wait to share this. Oh, thanks, Ali. Well, good on you for all the ma massive work you do. That's I know, like myself, you know, it's a, a labour of love and passion for sure. We're doing it for humanity. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> Did this episode tickle your heart, move and rattle you in its wisdom? I hope you resonated with the show. Please head over to the website circleofbirth.com for show notes, including my personalised take on the episode, pictures, resources and how you can connect with a storyteller. Sign up to the newsletter and most importantly, please help this show grow to its full potential of serving you in its ancient wisdom. Donations made easy via PayPal. All donations will be received with love. Head to circleofbirth.com slash donate. And yes, I'd love an iTunes rating. This has been another episode of the Birth Share Project. We breathe, we birth, we become. We honour you and empower you.